You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Dr. Seth Feuerstein is the founder and CEO of We Therapeutics. He has expertise across multiple areas of medicine, technology, and business. He is the founding board member of the Center for Biomedical and Interventional Technology at Yale and executive director of the Center for Digital Health, Innovation, and Excellence. He teaches at the medical school and is the faculty advisor for innovation in healthcare at the Yale School of Medicine and has an appointment in the Department of Defense. He works across multiple sectors in healthcare, including health insurance, healthcare startups, healthcare investing, clinical care delivery, innovation, and early stage emerging medical technologies. He sits on multiple for-profit and nonprofit boards. We'll talk about We Therapeutics in today's episode. They built out their research-based solution and they're in trials with adults, including the military. We handle a tough topic today around suicide and suicide prevention. If you or anyone you know are having suicidal thoughts, you can call 988, which is the new national crisis hotline, or you can text the crisis text hotline at 741741. That's 741741. During this episode, we speak about mental health, behavioral health, and how it's risen, digital therapeutics, and what they're best for. We also talk about his transition from academics to business and what others can learn. I think you'll learn a lot with this episode. Please stay tuned. Seth, thank you so much for coming on Startups for Good. Oh, thanks for having me, Miles. Always enjoy spending time with you. We are talking about an exciting subject, which is your company, but it serves a population struggling with something that is very scary to many and very sad. So I do want to make sure people are aware of that before we go too much further. I do want to ask you, We Therapeutics serves people to help prevent suicide. Why is suicide on the rise and such an issue today? Oh, uh, wow. Okay. So so that's, uh, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure there's a definitive answer, I would, other than that it's multifactorial in terms of it's as a, as a deadly sort of state of the brain, but it's been a leading killer for a long time. So while there has been a gradual increase and consistent increase for the last two decades in the U.S., it was, it has been a very, very high ranking killer among different age groups in the U.S. really for decades, uh, even before that. In terms of what's happening now in the country, I think they're, they're similar but maybe exacerbated things that were increasing risk of death previously. You know, the the question itself kind of begs an interesting thing that I've, you know, been learning more about, which is that we often think of suicide as somehow different from other medical conditions. And I think a lot of the stressors that increase death for the heart or for the lungs can also affect the brain. And so there's sort of classic medical causes. And then some of the things that increase trauma on the brain, whether it's direct physical trauma or other stress or trauma can increase the risk of, of suicide. And, and in some quarters, those have been increasing as well. But we see interesting and divergent trends depending on subpopulations in our country, not unlike in, in cancers and cardiac conditions based on other variables. So it's a, it's a complicated question 
without a singular answer. So if I understand what you're saying is one way to look at it is the brain is an organ just like any other and subject to similar sets of stressors and challenges. That's right. That's exactly right. And the suicidal state of the brain is a lot like the state that other organs can get into. So when you, when, if you take a step back for a moment and you look at what happens when someone's suicidal, it's a lot like a cardiac arrhythmia. So the cardiac arrhythmia, some cardiac arrhythmias are a state of the heart where there's this relatively spontaneous phase of risk for sudden death. In the case of the heart, the sudden death arises because of disorderly pumping or stopped pumping. There are a variety of things that can happen. And that leads to less oxygen flowing and, and, you know, and, and bodily dysfunction and, and, and death. The suicidal state of the brain is a similarly dysfunctional state where the individual ends up attempting or attempting to take or taking their own life because the brain isn't functioning well. And so the only way the the individual and the brain can see a way out of that mode of dysfunction is to sort of reset the brain. In fact, when you speak to suicidal individuals, the vast majority of them will say to you after the suicidal period, they actually didn't want to die. They just didn't see a way to get out of that state of dysfunction. So how does your company help? Uh, we build on a, a multi-decade series of research studies and rethinking of the way to prevent suicides. So when you think about uh, medical breakthroughs, they, they often don't happen in singular events. And in our case, the same is true. So we started down this road about eight years ago as a company. I started meeting with leading researchers around the company and thinking, if we were really going to tackle this problem, we needed to get the best interventions together under one roof, working on singular, singular pathways. And the way we felt that we could do this was using software not necessarily software to earlier identify who's at risk of suicide, which is something that I think people ordinarily think about, like, oh, if you're going to prevent suicide, you want to identify people sooner. It's true. Identifying them sooner can be helpful, but it's only helpful if you have interventions that reduce their risk of deadly events. And so the, we got together a group of researchers and we built a software application. That software application, you can think of it as a therapy experience for the person who's at risk of having a suicide attempt or suicidal death. And it helps retrain them in how they identify when they're at risk, how they prevent being at risk and what to do when they are at risk. Not unlike what happens, you know, when people have cardiac conditions, they learn about how to identify when things are going badly and when to go to the doctor they might learn when to take aspirin. There are things you can do to prevent bad outcomes in different organ systems. And we basically teach the person how to do that for their brain. And are all the interventions speaking or thinking, or could they be go seek a doctor or something else? It, it can be all of the above. So, uh, and, and it also helps the person understand when do they need to see a doctor? When can they self-manage? And I think one of the challenges about suicide and one of the things that makes it so comp there are several things that make it complicated. One of them is this idea that it's a choice. And the other is that it's, it's, it's out of our control. And so when, when people attempt or die by suicide, 
we often look at it like, why did they make that choice? And we feel like it was within their control, but we don't say that about other organs. But the truth is understanding when you need to go to a doctor is an important part of preventing suicides. Uh, there's a knee jerk reaction, both in the healthcare system and outside the healthcare system. When someone mentions suicidality to get really anxious and to freeze up, but taking a step back and thinking about it more like, what do you do if someone has chest pain or what do you do if someone has a lesion on their skin, you go through an orderly set of processes to identify where the risk is and how to reduce the risk for that individual. And we help the person understand that for themselves. You know, one of the challenges is that the brain is the tool you're using as an individual in order to identify and get out of that risk period, but it's, it's in a state that's not functioning properly when that's occurring. And so practicing what to do and continually working on what to do become really important because if you or any, anybody out there listening to this you know, can think of a time that was very stressful or an event that occurred very quickly, it can be really hard to have a clear memory of what happened. The brain can get easily overloaded. And so in this particular case, whereas if I have chest pain, my brain is generally functioning well. In the case of suicide, if I've got psychic pain and that psychic pain may be leading me towards a suicidal mode or suicidal state of the brain, I need to be practicing those things in advance to make sure that when the brain isn't functioning well, I'm actually in a place to do them. So what is the patient experience like to engage with your system? You can think about it as an interactive experience with an app. So in our case, we're going through uh, clinical trials under the FDA. And, and the way it works is if someone's identified as being at risk, they download the app. That app has an approximate two-month experience where the patient interacts with it. There's a mix of multimedia, personalized didactics. It, it's, it's not designed to be engaging and addictive like a social media platform or a video game. It's really designed to feel more like a clinical journey for the patient and designed to help them focus on reduced suicide attempts. You know, they, a lot of people might have chronic suicidal thoughts, but not necessarily have high risk of an attempt. And they might have very limited suicidal thoughts, but have very high risk of an attempt. And so while we do help them understand things like suicidal thinking, we also make sure they focus on attempt risk as an independent variable. Uh, you can think of it as similar to other diseases. And we help them understand that, like I can have low back pain. It doesn't necessarily mean I have a ruptured disc in my spine. And so there's a big distinction between the two. And there are many people who have chronic pain, but little to no risk of ever having a ruptured disc. And then you have some people who've never had pain and their disc ruptures all of a sudden. And suicide is similar. And how do you distinguish between those two? Today, we're not that good at it, actually. I think there's a tremendous amount of research occurring in commercial and academic uh, settings to better identify who of the people who have suicidal thinking, whether it's chronic or intermittent, who's at increased risk. There are a variety of ways we're getting better at determining that, but we're still not great at it. Uh, there are many studies that, that show that clinicians who evaluate patients in the hospital are about as good at it as a coin flip. Unfortunately, uh, leaning and leveraging technology-based tools will help on that front as well. There's a lot of research underway on multiple fronts, ranging from biomarkers like voice, uh, natural language processing in terms of what people say, other clinical scales, and even extraction of data from electronic medical records and combining all of those things. And there are people looking at other factors such as genetics, uh, which are kind of more static baseline factors for an individual. 
the likelihood that they might have an attempt as well. Now you're going through the FDA process for this as a digital therapeutic. I'm curious with the recent rise of digital therapeutics, what are they best for? What are their limits? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah. So digital therapeutics, I think of them in, in two broad categories, over-the-counter and FDA cleared. When you think about over-the-counter, that generally refers to things you could buy in the retail part of your pharmacy. If you go to if you go to a store like a Target or a Walmart, they're the things on the shelves. And a lot of them actually are regulated, but they are available without a prescription. There are some products that are only available by prescription. So most prescriptions that we get for antibiotics, for psychiatric medications, for cancer medications, uh, all of those things, cardiac medications are available by prescription only. So digital therapeutics can fall into both categories. And there's other categories that are sort of more wellness products that I think some people categorize. So I think you know, I think it's important to differentiate between those general categories. In terms of what's best suited for the prescription digital therapeutics, I think it's products where the impact is important for a significant condition where if they don't get a product that's proven to work, they have serious potential negative outcomes as a result of it. That seems to be the category that the FDA is most interested in regulating. I also think it's important for prescribers and patients when it comes to certain conditions, to have comfort that they are getting a best-in-class product, and I think certainly for suicide and and you know it it falls under the FDA purview. There are other conditions such as insomnia, where we have products that are available over the counter and by prescription in the United States that are software products, and I think time will tell what is the best distribution channel for some of those. Is that is that clear? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean. What are the most successful digital therapeutics so far? I think it depends on how you measure success. It's an emerging and newer field. So I think that there's no question that in terms of clinical data, certain conditions are showing that software can be an extremely robust delivery mechanism. So from a kind of evidence perspective, what works really well, there's no question that for, for something like insomnia, digital therapeutics can work extremely well. That doesn't mean all insomnia apps work well. So I do want to say just because it's been proven that a really good insomnia app can work extremely well and be broadly available to millions of, of patients, there are many that have never shown to be particularly effective. So I think that for some conditions like insomnia, they've, they've been extremely successful on the data front. In terms of in terms of commercial success, I think it's early in the process. And there have been some digital therapeutics that are FDA clear that are starting to get coverage, starting to get reimbursement. A couple of companies have raised tremendous amounts of capital, hundreds of millions of dollars. Two of them are now publicly listed. And I think they are really emerging as a next layer of kind of the biotechnology ecosystem that's software driven. On the over-the-counter side, there are a variety of digital therapeutics that are not, F, not FDA approved products uh, targeting either different types of medical claims or different types of conditions. Uh, some of them have shown very good data. Um, the vast majority of them don't have much published data. And so it's hard to say how, how efficacious they are, although some of them have achieved significant commercial success. We were very fortunate, myself and, and some of my colleagues founded an early digital therapeutics company that was over the counter about 15 years ago. And we're fortunate to be successful and eventually scaled to about 100 million benefit lives and uh, was acquired by a national health insurer. 
So I think there are different ways to measure success in this space, and, and we're seeing emerging examples in, in those different categories. Do you see the rise of digital therapeutics being connected with the rise of behavioral health in that these things can be delivered digitally and therefore, you know, software is eating the world? I actually tend not to. So, so I think interest in, in behavioral health has definitely increased, but I personally tend to not differentiate behavioral from medical. And let me explain what I mean by that. If I was to say to you, uh, is it more important for your cardiac outcomes, whether or not you take Lipitor or your behavior? It's basically a rhetorical question. I mean, we know that diet, exercise, sleep, these things are extremely important for good cardiac outcomes. For the vast majority of people who take Lipitor, if it's appropriately prescribed, you will reduce your risk. But if you have bad behavior, you smoke, you, you, know, you eat poorly, you don't exercise, your outcomes are going to be far worse and it's not going to be overcome by taking that medication. Behavior and medical, so, so it kind of depends on what you mean by behavioral. Uh, if you mean psychiatric therapies, there's no question that software uniquely lends itself to either improving uh, clinician-delivered live therapy or in some cases being a replacement for it. And so in that case, yes, where the therapeutic modality inherently was not invasive to the body, software lends itself to that. And there's definitely a lot of interest in that because there's huge shortages of mental health clinicians. And even when people get access to mental health clinicians, studies show that they are very often highly variable in the quality and fidelity of what they do as compared to what's effective for patients. And so I think there's a lot of excitement around helping solve shortage issues in terms of clinician availability, as well as quality issues. And there's a tremendous variety of tools emerging on the quality side, uh, not just tools that do the therapy, you know, as their main activity in the software, but also software that measures quality in live sessions, software that better differentiates patients who are at risk. Uh, there are many different categories. You've had success in so many different areas related, but different uh, as a doctor, as a professor, JD, working in an academic setting, as well as starting companies. How did you learn the digital or software side of the business? <laughs> it was basically by accident. I got really interested in... So I'm a psychopharmacologist, essentially a prescriber by background. And yeah, I was really fortunate. I've had, you know, arguably the best training a person can have, you know, incredible graduate school, uh, medical school and law school at NYU, internship and residency at Yale, been on the faculty here for more than 20 years. Well, actually, no, that's not true. I've been on the faculty here for almost 20 years now. I guess I'm dating myself, but I think that that like what I learned would have been the best thing to, to make available to every patient. And in many cases, that's true. But one of the things I noticed about 15 years ago was that people were getting prescribed too many medications. So we had lots of patients for whom talk therapy was really the right thing for them. And unfortunately, they didn't have access to quality talk therapy, even in New Haven. New Haven, you know, by some metrics is the most prevalent place to be able to get access to mental health care. The Yale Department of Psychiatry has hundreds of clinicians in it, and we have a relatively small city. But getting high quality validated talk therapy was a challenge for people I was trying to get help for. And that sent me down the road of looking into what could be done to scale it. And it turned out there was some really outstanding research, mostly done internationally in places like the United Kingdom, Australia, 
And so I traveled around the world and met with different researchers who at the time were doing pretty crude use of software, but really great clinical outcomes to take some of the repetitive parts of the therapeutic process and digitize them. And I believe this could really work in the United States for patients and for the people paying for their care as a win-win. And also for providers who often don't want to be doing some of the repetitive activities. They don't consider it high value use of their time or they don't enjoy it. And so I had to kind of learn how to take what was done by those other researchers and put it on a platform and distribute it in a way that was appealing to patients as well as the people who were paying for their care. I like to say I became an accidental software architect. And then of course, once the software was built, I had to become an accidental software salesman. And I think it's, I don't, I don't think I love sales as per se, but it's not hard to sell something you really believe in. And so that was really the process. There was a lot of tough learning. I mean, understanding what's happening when you hire a software team is, is a real challenge for people who are not technically trained. And I had, I had not been technically trained. Any advice, the uh, things that you learned the hard way and that you'd like to pass on to others? I think the single hardest thing is, is getting real clarity from your software and product teams around what you expect from them. And then if it's not working efficiently and well, being willing to replace them or bring in other personnel. That is ultimately the scariest and the hardest thing. And I've seen that play out both in startups and in large corporations. I'd actually be really interested in your thoughts, Miles, because you've done a lot of this. But my experience is that there's so much at stake for a startup that when you have a technical lead and you have a software team and you're an executive who's not technical, it's very scary to make a shift in that team if things aren't going well, because it's kind of a black box to you. But if you're concerned and you think there's, there's real issues, it means you're probably correct and you really do need to make a shift. You know, it's kind of trading a known risk for an unknown risk, but it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's also, I've seen it play out in large environments. When my company got acquired, that original digital therapeutics company, there, were, there was a huge information technology division at that health insurer. And some of the people were incredibly talented and some were not. And it was, you know, very challenging to get management to intervene because they often viewed the IT team as essentially a black box and they, they weren't sure who was performing well and who wasn't. Yeah, I think this is a real challenge, communication, goal setting, clarity, and understanding performance uh, between those who are in a technical team and those who don't have a technical background. I think a good percentage of the cause is, as you allude to, this feeling of discomfort, like not understanding and feeling somehow like you're not able to play a, an important role in the technology process if you don't have a technology background. And I think part of learning how to contribute, how to manage a software development project if you don't have a technical background is learning enough of the language, building enough trust in the relationships and understanding the overall process and your role in it that you gain confidence even if you don't know how to write the code yourself. To your point about changing leadership I've certainly been through that, changing technology leadership when it felt like things were not headed in the, wrong, the right direction. And it can be tough. It can be scary. And sometimes you wait too long. But hopefully you don't have to do it, to your point, if you're setting clear objectives, clear understanding about what everyone's role is and what you expect to be built in the end. I think that with the prevalence of agile techniques, uh, many software organizations are having a better relationship with their internal customers because they're giving their customers the power to change the scope and the requirements as they go. 
yeah. which, which feels much better, I think, to many business people. That I, I completely agree. And it's interesting listening to you. I guess something I learned is that I, I think business, like, like that's also interesting, is like obsessing over the technical products when you're not a technical person. So, you know, seeing the wireframes, seeing the mock-ups, and then as things are being built, testing them yourself so that you're in there providing real dialogue also shows the team that you are going to be in there checking the work. And I think it raises the caliber of what they do and increases the dialogue between them and the non-technical teams, which I think is really helpful. I've seen it be really helpful as well. Yeah. Being willing to engage in user acceptance testing in a meaningful way and have a conversation if it doesn't meet your expectations. I remember... I had a conversation with software development, my first startup, software developer in my first startup. And he he wrote out user acceptance testing does not equal requirements gathering. And what he meant by that was when you're looking at what we've already built, don't tell us what you think we should have built. And I understand the frustration of getting feedback on something that you just spent time and effort and feel proud of. Yet I informed him that as long as your iteration cycles are short, that can be very positive. Course correct, get on the same page about what you're ultimately trying to build. And if people asked you to build something that isn't what really is needed, don't you want to find out sooner than later? And it's a great time to gather requirements for your next cycle. Yeah, that's a phenomenal anecdote. Like I, you know, we, I have a luxury in this current project because we're dealing with you know, patients who are often at their most challenging point clinically that they've ever encountered, certainly their families are seeing that, you know, from their perspective, that I've told the software teams and used that to say, look, we won't know everyone's experience. There are providers, there are patients, there are their caregivers who are often family and friends, and this is life or death. And so let's together understand that we're going to continue to have to iterate because we're going to learn as we go. We're doing things that have never been done before. And so I actually have get a little bit of leeway and luxury with the technical team because of that. We do a lot of usability testing with patients. And I think because of the uniqueness and complexity, in contrast to say consumer products, we don't overemphasize theories going in until we get feedback from the users. Uh, so I get away, with, get away with a little bit more leeway, I think, than the typical manager. Now, something else I want to ask you about is the transition from academic research project to commercialization. And I know you've helped a number of other people down that path. Anything you've learned from that process or advice you'd give to others? Yeah, I think in some ways it depends. You know, I think you're, you're also referencing, I have a, a program grant at Yale from the NIH to help researchers kind of think about, do they want to do that and understand, is their research appropriate for that? And, and I, I enjoy that work a great deal and even did a bunch of it when I was a resident in training. I think it depends on which piece of the ecosystem you are. So if you're a researcher, I think very often your research, you spend more time with it than you do your own children. And it really is like a child. And so there's a tremendous amount of, of objective expertise uh, around the quality of the work, but then subjective or even overemphasized attachment to it. And I think really understanding that going in and having as much objectivity as possible around the project is, is really important if you're going to have success scaling it outside of academia. I think if you're a business person, 
working with researchers, understanding the dynamic that I just mentioned is really important because you're, you're often going to be working with researchers and scientists who have a real attachment to their work and letting go and having it take on a life of its own outside of the lab or the academic environment is a real challenge and something new for them. When you think about how attached parents get and how competitive they get on a baseball field or in college admissions, you know, if you want to magnify that around elite scientists and the attachment and competitiveness that they can have, these things require a lot of management and, 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 and conversations and clarity, both before, during, and after the effort uh, begins to make sure that everyone's aligned and optimized for success. I think those, that's really the main issue I think people don't often expect the funding, the intellectual property, the business strategy, most of that is otherwise pretty typical to any other environment when you're taking an idea and commercializing it. Do you think it matters how supportive the university is of entrepreneurship among their faculty? Absolutely. There's probably a sweet spot that's hard to identify, but I think it matters both for the university and for the individual researcher. There's no question that universities that really try to optimize and professionalize things find among their faculty that they are feel that it's facilitative, that they get a lot more done uh, in terms of uh, impact to the world around them. It's probably possible to overindulge and do too much for faculty where there's not enough uh, friction, for instance, to getting funding where it, it, you know, there's probably some middle ground where you don't want to make it too easy for faculty because then uh, there's not enough refinement of what it is that they're going to do before they try to go to market. But I'd say in general, most universities probably feedback is are not supportive enough. And it's a challenge. Not, you know, it depends on the university in terms of do they really have enough going on that's got commercial potential to justify the investment in the infrastructure required for proper support, uh, which can be pretty extensive. With your background and success, you've had opportunities to be an investor full time. And why has that not been a path that you've pursued more vigorously? That's a really good question. I think I might one day, you know, being what's interesting about being a CEO and founder is that it allows me to devote the bulk of my time to a very limited number of projects where I'm extremely passionate. And so for me, it allows me to really obsess over solving a problem in a way that's a little bit less of a broad portfolio approach. Now that said, I am getting better as I'm getting older in understanding where I add the most value to a project and where I often can be less valuable in, than other people in terms of the time required to get something done. And probably the portfolio approach will yield more positive outcome across more projects eventually. But for now, I've found that really digging into just a couple of projects or investing in just a few things has been really rewarding and productive and has worked. But it's, it's a really good question. Probably, probably at the point where I understand enough about my own strengths and weaknesses to, to do what I do across a, a broader portfolio, I think. Oh, well, stay tuned. What should you do for someone who's talking about suicide if you're a layman, someone yeah. you care about? Yeah, so, so if there's someone you know who you are concerned about or who mentioned suicide, uh, one thing you can do is dial 988. So we're actually in the middle of a transformation of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And what's fascinating about that lifeline is they're really there to help. And you can actually be on a conference call with someone and a lifeline. I've actually done that for people in the past. I've actually even had friends call me 
and say they knew someone who was at risk. And then I would get on the crisis line with my friend to talk through how to help the person that they thought was at risk. The lifeline actually can be a really productive way to talk through the situation. Uh, there's no singular answer other than that, because every situation is a little bit different in terms of where are the people? Do they have potentially deadly means available? Uh, I'd say the other thing, other than reaching out to 988 or the crisis text line, is to take a deep breath and continue to talk to the person. A lot of people freeze up and get really anxious when someone in their life uh, they think is at risk of suicide. But the reality is talking about it, talking about it in a calm way can be very helpful for that other person and can help you gather more information to understand how much risk there really is. Thank you. And can you share more about uh, WE? Yeah. So we've been really fortunate to have a group of phenomenal technology investors, uh, strategic partners, ranging from pharmaceutical to health insurance. We've got great academic partners and we're uh, running pivotal trials now across adults. We will be having trials running across uh, youth pretty soon. And we have you know trial underway now in the military. So there's a lot going on that we're really excited about. And, and you know, if you or anyone you know is interested uh, in being supportive or partnering, we're open to, to those types of conversations because we view this as a, a, an important area where we should get multi-stakeholders together to help solve the problem rather than work in isolation. Any other advice for aspiring entrepreneurs? You know, uh, find good mentors and be a great mentor. I think that I've learned a ton from great mentors and I learn a ton from trying to mentor other people. And then the other is constantly be on the lookout for your own weaknesses. Like for me, uh, understanding them, embracing them and supporting myself with really great people who are better at those things than I am. I think those, you know, those two buckets in retrospect are, are you know, are invaluable things uh, from my perspective. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you, Miles. Really a pleasure. Thanks so much for doing a, you know, a, a podcast focused on doing good. It's really meaningful. So thank you. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.